I heard a pretty heartwarming story on the news a couple of days ago. It was about this woman here, Kara Coley. She is a bartender at a gay bar in Gulfport, Mississippi. And on January 19th, when she was getting started on her shift, she got a phone call. It started out the way a number of phone calls to their bar start out. She picked up the phone and said, hello, Sips, this is Kara speaking. How can I help you? And the caller said, is this a gay bar? Now, Kara knew that these calls usually went one of two ways. And she braced herself for what she thought might be coming. She said, well, you know, we're a bar for everybody. But yes, we are a gay bar. And the caller said, are you gay? Kara said, yes, ma'am, I am. And the next question surprised her. The caller said, what did you most want to hear from your parents when you came out to them? That is never a call that Kara had gotten before. And she was a little stunned. She, she didn't say anything right away. And so the caller went on. She said, my son just came out to me. And I don't know much about this, and I don't know what to say to him, but I know that people get messed up based on how their parents react. And I figured I'd call you and ask. So Kara said, do you love him? And the caller said, of course. And Kara said, do you accept him and and how he is? And the caller said, "I, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I want him to be happy. And Kara said, well, make sure he knows that. And things should work out from there. The caller said, okay, thank you. Hung up the phone. Now, when I read this story, I was of two minds about it. And one of my minds (laughs) was asking, you know, is this sufficient in our world? Isn't this just feel-good clickbait that BuzzFeed News wants to turn around for a profit on ads from chumps like me who are going to go, oh, that's so nice. Got big systemic problems in this country and in this world that the LGBTQ community is facing. So is this sufficient? No. But is it necessary? Yes. Rod's story from the beginning of the service. Where's Rodney? He's hiding. There he is. Is it sufficient? Do I want that guy not to be a Nazi anymore? Of course. But is Rodney right? That part of what's necessary here is to be ourselves unapologetically. That by being ourselves unafraid and being kind in this world, we can maybe start to make one small shift in someone's perspective and then another and then another small shift in how people see the world. Yes. You know that phrase, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good? I'm bad at that. Anybody else bad at that? Yeah. It has been hard for me to do that in my life. I know how I want things to be in this world, and it's really, really easy to be critical when things don't measure up. And offering critique of what we see in this world isn't wrong. It has its place. But being that first kind voice or that first open hand has its place also. 
to welcome someone into something different. Our message series this winter that Reverend Ken and I have been preaching since the new year is called Being Refuge. Being Refuge. That word might have different meanings for each of you. Our use of the word refuge is meant to come from the way it's used in the Buddhist tradition. You may know that when someone converts, so to speak, to Buddhism, it is called taking refuge. A Buddhist takes refuge in three things. In the Buddha himself, the originator of the Buddhist path and way, takes refuge in the Dharma, which are the teachings of the Buddha that have been passed down, and takes refuge in the Sangha, which is the community of other people committed to that path. Chogyam Trungpa, a Buddhist teacher, describes taking refuge as not a sure path to salvation, not a guarantee, but actually rather as an opportunity, he says, to give up our attachment to basic security. We have to give up our sense of home ground, which is illusory anyway. He says we might have a sense of home ground as where we were born or the way we look, but we don't actually have any home, fundamentally speaking. There is actually no solid basis of security in one's life. And because we don't have any home ground, we are lost souls, so to speak. Basically, we are completely lost and confused and in some sense, pathetic. Cheerful, right? Isn't it kind of a relief, though? You ever seen that cartoon with people walking around, no one's talking to each other, but they all have a thought bubble? Everybody else knows what's going on, right? Everybody else knows what they're doing. What's wrong with me? It's kind of a relief sometimes to be reminded that everybody is a little lost and a little confused and, yes, a little pathetic. What I hear in this from Chogyam Trungpa is actually the same orientation to life that I hear in many strains of Christianity that have drawn me most near. This idea that we are all in need. We're all in need. Whether we characterize that need as being salvation from sins or in need of grace and love or in need of refuge from suffering. Being human means having a basic orientation of neediness. And neediness is super vulnerable, right? How often do we get the message, don't be needy? God, I I came of, of age, so to speak, I would say, in the Sex and the City era of dating, right? For a woman to be needy, that was not cool. And for men... I know that the way we construct masculinity, the toxic strains of masculinity that you all live within, you're supposed to be providers, right? Not needy. Never needy. We hear don't be needy. We hear fake it till you make it. We even call certain marginalized groups the needy, as if the rest of us are the satiated, right? There's so many ways we want to push that neediness out over there somewhere else. But we all have needs. There is no solid basis of security in one's life. We are never set for good. It just doesn't work that way. And there's actually 
I think, good news in that. Because it means that we all have a chance to be refuge for each other in a million tiny little ways. We are released from that pressure of needing to be set for good. Or needing to set somebody else up for good, right? When we let ourselves off that hook. We can do whatever we can in small moments. We can meet vulnerability with kindness. But we might be out of practice with this. I was thinking about this recently in a conversation I had with a ministry colleague, a friend of mine who lives in Boston. Her name's Annie Gonzalez Milliken. And she had just been to a fundraising training for church leaders. My church nerd you know, brain went off immediately, and I was mining her for information and asking her all kinds of questions. And as she and I talked, you know, we realized something that hadn't come up in the training but was underneath everything we were talking about, which is that asking for money is vulnerable. Asking for money is putting you in a vulnerable position. It's needy, right, by nature, And Annie was talking about one of the things she learned in this training. She said, you know what? All kinds of organizations, not just churches, they try to cover up all that vulnerability in the way they raise money, right? One of the things they learned was that the three most common strategies for fundraising, you can read them as an acronym, FOG. Organizations love to bring in the FOG, right? Call in the FOG. FOG stands for fear, obligation, and guilt. How many of you have ever been pitched with one of these strategies, right? It shows up in all kinds of things that people ask for, not just raising money. How many of you have been pitched with one of these strategies for why you need to give your grandmother a Christmas present? Or why you need to show up to that family wedding that you don't want to show up to, right? Calling in the fog is really tempting when we need something. Because we know that the fog has sharp hooks that often work But it's such a false power position. Wielding fog over someone is so incongruous with how we actually feel in that moment when we need something from them. Think about how disconnected that false power position is from that genuine vulnerable experience of asking someone, of longing for something of having a need that wants to be fulfilled. How different might our world be if we had more places where we could inhabit the vulnerable truth with each other, that place of no security, and have hope that we might be held in kindness in those moments. The title of my message today, Making the Road, comes from a quote by the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire, We make the road by walking. We make the road by walking. It's a lovely way of saying we make all of the communities that we inhabit. We form them continuously by all the choices we make with each other. We can't be perfect, and none of us individually can make the world perfect. But we can try to be good. And we all have power in making this road together. We can all find ways to be refuge for each other in all of these kinds of difficult or vulnerable moments we all experience.
between Christmas this year and New Year's. Remember when it was like six degrees out for like 47 days in a row? Yeah. My uh, my deep extrovert self couldn't handle it. I, I was, you know, cooped up inside, didn't want to go out because it was too cold. But I live in my apartment alone, and I realized I was going to go insane if I stayed there much longer. And so I recognized an opportunity to ask for something that I need. And I put out an invitation to about 15, 16 of my friends, folks that I know who live in Philadelphia where I live. I know it's going to be dangerous tonight. I'm staying inside. Don't worry. I put out this invite, and I said, you know, the last Saturday of every month, until it gets warm again, so for, you know, the next two, three, four months, I'm going to host Huga Days at my house, and you all can come over. Now, some of you think I just sneezed, right? Huga is very on trend right now. It is a term that comes from Denmark. And I first learned about, actually, from Gil Jacobson, uh, a member of our congregation who has some Scandinavian ancestry. Huga is this Danish practice of creating warmth and connection and well-being, a complete absence, it says, of anything frustrating or emotionally overwhelming, taking pleasure from the presence of gentle, soothing things, celebrating the everyday. Huga is a concept in Denmark and in other Scandinavian countries, and when you read a little bit about it, when you look it up online, you see lots of images of socks and candles, hot drinks, puzzles, board games. It's all about embracing the fact that it is cold, right? There is cold in our lives, and we can choose to make a space, a very simple kind refuge within it, a space that we can share with others in our lives. And so as the first Huga Day neared, just last Saturday, I guess, two Saturdays ago, I got my apartment ready. I got a big jug of cider that I could heat up on the stove. And I found myself, as I was preparing, surprised by two things. The first was that this started as me putting myself out there with something that I needed. But I found so much joy, so much more than I expected, in creating this space for the other people who were coming. And it really could have been a hassle. (laughs) I realized pretty quickly that my apartment is about 600 square feet, and I invited 15 people over. Three of them have toddlers under three years old, And my apartment is covered in breakable, poisonous, sharp-edged things. (laughs) Because I'm 34, and I don't worry about that kind of stuff. BPAs, is that the stuff everybody does? BPAs everywhere, right? (laughs) And so I thought for a second, what have I done? And I realized we would really need a space, especially for those little ones, the babies and the toddlers, to contain them. But I knew enough about babies that I needed to make it a space they'd actually want to be in, right? It would need to appeal to them, because if we just said, you have to stay over there, that probably would guarantee that it wouldn't work. And so I went shopping at Target. I remembered seeing, at one point, those little indoor play tents that look like animals or like a little tiny house, the kind that when I was growing up, we used to have in the backyard sometimes, the big plastic ones. But they make these indoor tents now. And I found one on clearance for $20. And I thought, this is it. 
And suddenly, I was making a kid hygge space. I was checking out at Target with a lot more faux fur than I even usually check out with. A little tiny area rug for the tent, little pillows, some coloring books, some glitter crayons. I have never had more fun at Target, and trust me, my enjoyment level for shopping at Target already has a high baseline, folks. The joy I experienced creating refuge for them was way beyond what I anticipated. And I also got a reminder that it's not all about what you can buy. Because the second surprising thing was the response that I got from one of the people that I invited. The person I actually knew the least well. This is someone that I had met once at an event where we got to know each other and saw that we had an affinity for each other, but we did that thing where we would see each other in the neighborhood, in the coffee shop, at the farmer's market, and go, we really need to hang out, right? But we never actually done it. She replied to my invitation, I love this idea, and I'm deeply appreciative of your generosity. Now, most of my friends were like, yeah, I'll bring the wine, right? I love this idea, and I'm deeply appreciative of your generosity. I hadn't even thought of what I was doing in that way. I'd thought about what I was asking for, what I needed. But of course, just making space to be together is itself a generous act. I know that from a lot of things in my life, and especially from here, from places like Wellsprings, from spiritual communities like ours, that nobody has to go to, nobody has to create. It's something that I come back to more than I ever expected as a pastor, just reminding people that we're here every week. And what a gift it is to be able to say that. We're here every week, not, oh, it's kind of cold, we may not be there this week, right? Or, no, this is Super Bowl Sunday, nobody's going to come, so we may not be there this week. Or Ken and Lee aren't really feeling it this week, so, you know, we're not going to be there. No, we're here every single week. Even when we're sick. If you're having a tough month, which people often come up to me and say they are, and they're apologizing for missing a Sunday here and there, that's fine. We'll still be here. If you have to miss seven Sundays in a row, that's okay. I don't really care if you joined a year ago all excited the way that you might join a gym or a yoga studio, right, and think, I'm going to be here every single week. And then you miss a couple weeks. You miss a couple weeks here and there. Three weeks later, you're like, oh, I really should get back there. And one day you're like, I have not been there in six months. Hmm. Thank you, Harry. And it's certainly not that I don't want to see you all, right? I don't mean I don't care in that way. But I'm not mad. There's no fog here. Our existence is an act of generosity. We create this no matter who else comes. And we do it because we know that it's a way of meeting our vulnerability, our shared needs, our shared longings with kindness. It's a way of practicing being refuge for ourselves and for each other. I'm going to skip to my closing story, <laughs> which is from the blogger Rachel Macy Stafford. 
who some of you might know as hands-free mama. Rachel, in one of her most popular posts, realized something, realized that she was doing a little bit too much with her kids. She wanted to give them what they needed, right? She wanted to show them that she cared, and so she would constantly share with her children a lot, right? All of this encouragement and praise, guidance, suggestions for improvement. Whenever she watched them do anything, whether it was on a sports field or in school, she would go into extensive detail about everything she noticed. Until one day she read an article about the insights that had been gained in research done by two scientists over three decades about what parents can most do to support good coaching for their kids, to support their kids' performance in all these different areas. And the research showed clearly that college athletes, when they were asked what their parents said that made them feel the best, made them feel great, that amplified their joy during and after any kind of performance that had the most impact their overwhelming response was, I loved hearing, I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play. And Rachel realized that with all of those details that she was giving her two little girls, that that might be misinterpreted, right, as always encouraging them to do more or fixing them. Or I'm watching you closely to make sure that you're good enough. But had she ever just said, I love to watch you play, and left it at that, She hadn't. So she decided to try. And several days later, she had an opportunity. Her five-year-old was off to ukulele practice. That's her. And it was not just any day of ukulele practice. It was a big day. Her teacher believed that she was ready to play without the help of those little colored dots that had lined the neck of her instrument for the two or so years that she'd been playing. The teacher removed the small blue and yellow and red circles and asked her daughter to play the song that she'd been working on for months, Ours by Taylor Swift. And Rachel said, with no hesitation, my daughter began strumming and singing, and I watched as her fingers found their homes with no need for colorful stickers. With a confident smile, she said, my daughter belted out her favorite line, don't you worry your pretty little mind. People throw rocks at things that shine. And she said, I had to look away because her eyes were blurring with tears. And Rachel said, I realized, you know, I don't cry because she has good pitch or because I think she's some country music star in the making. I cry because she's happy. And she has a voice, and she is free. And I cry because I love to watch her play. And when the lesson was over, as they walked down the empty hallway together, she said, I knelt down, and I looked straight into her blue eyes and said, I love to watch you play your ukulele. I love to hear you sing. And then I stopped talking. <laughs> nothing about the dots, nothing about the notes. She said, my child's face broke into her most glorious smile, the one that makes her eyes scrunch up and become these little slices of joy. And then she did something I didn't expect. She threw herself against me and wrapped her arms tightly around my neck and whispered, thank you, Mama. 
And in doing so, Rachel said, I swear I could read in her mind, "Ah, the pressure's off. She loves to hear me play. That's all. May we all find places where we can share such simple and easy ways of being refuge for each other. Such simple kindnesses with each other. Not knowing where or to what great thing they might lead. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, Spirit who knows our hearts' deepest yearnings and longings, who sees with clarity that we all carry those things, that we all have places where we are vulnerable, which are openings up to each other. May we remember to show these when we feel it's safe. May we remember to take risks sometimes, even when we're not sure, so that we might see what these connections from the world around us could bring. For these prayers I've spoken and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.